Paul McGuire report. This is Paul McGuire. Many of the people that you and I know, and that's our circle of acquaintances, family, relatives, co-workers, and all kinds of people that we interact with on uh, different levels of communication and different levels of, let's just say, opening up in terms of transparency and like letting people know what you really think about things. Most of us are kind of selective about that because you and I are people of a different breed. Let's face it. We, uh, <clears throat> we just don't go with the flow, as Ken Kesey used to say. We don't just go with the flow. We think about where we're going. We consider the path that our feet take. Um, that's a biblical truth. Otherwise, you know, I wasn't a pirate. You weren't a pirate. I saw years ago with my kids some Johnny Depp movies, Pirates of the Caribbean, which is neither here nor there, except, well, I won't go into that. I won't go into his life and his belief system that if you observe carefully, you can you see a belief system. And I'll just leave it at that. Okay, so pirates have pirate ships, and they often make people walk what I guess is called the gangplank. And uh, that's when they walk on this. It's kind of like a kind of like a wooden diving board, except it's far longer and far wider, <clears throat> and it's not made to bounce on. A gangplank is for the pirates to either come alongside another ship and board that other ship for the purpose of robbery and killing and whatever else pirates do. And then, uh, by the way, the skull and bones, which is the pirate's flag, it should, it should be noted in your mind somewhere in the library of your brain that the Skull and Bones is an occultic symbol that goes way back. So it's interesting that that's the pirate flag, you know, the black flag with the white skull and bones. It also symbolizes rebellion and stuff. But then you take modern-day, contemporary, big-time, very powerful, interconnected, secret societies like Skull and Bones, um, which they, I believe, uh, the Bushes and John Kerry and quite a few other notables, George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr., <clears throat> John Kerry, and a lot of others, big, high-level power people. They had a big chapter of Skull and Bones. I believe that it was at Yale University. Anyway, the symbol for Skull and Bones, the secret society, the occult secret society that some of the elite belong to, has the same basic logo or symbol that a pirate symbol is. It's a skull and bones, crossbones. Now, let's, let's see. Whenever I'm thinking, whenever I'm watching a movie or a TV show, a book, or hearing somebody talk or entertainment or for example, I was bored, and I don't remember where I was, and how I, I mean, I would, I would never have necessarily gone out of my way. Oh, I know what it was. I, Johnny Depp starred in a movie that was about a uh, kind of a renegade journalist 
who used to uh, write for Rolling Stone magazine. Rolling Stone magazine was, at least at one time, it just wasn't a rock and roll magazine. It just didn't cover the news of the rock and roll industry, although that was their pinnacle. I mean, that was their main thing. But they also paid and hired uh, higher quality writers to write on things like politics, uh, economics, social change, and all kinds of stuff. So you even have uh, one of the former heads, oh, no, not the former head of the, the, the CIA, but the, uh, I quote him in my book, uh, A Prophecy of the Future, A Prophecy of the Future of America. Carl Bernstein, you know, of, of Watergate fame, they, they won a Pulitzer Prize. Now, you win a Pulitzer Prize usually because what you're writing about is politically correct. You don't get a Pulitzer Prize if you go against the winds of political correctness. So I quote him extensively in A Prophecy of the Future of America and some of my other books, uh, like The Greatest Battle. Why? Because he, Carl Bernstein, for Rolling Stone, of all places to publish it, wrote a very long, very well-researched article on the reality of uh, the intelligence agencies, specifically the CIA, embedding CIA agents in the very top levels and positions of journalism, of the entertainment industry, of newspapers, of television, so-called news, of radio news, writers, authors, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, and the big publishers, when I say the big publishers, uh, the biggest magazines at the time, which back then were things like, were, were magazines like Time, Newsweek, Look, which is not around anymore, and many, many other magazines and newspapers, and the CIA. He, he got the cooperation, he obviously got permission from the CIA to disclose this massive operation where the CIA embedded uh, their agents who were specially trained in writing and speaking and communicating and public relations and advertising and propaganda, journalism, et cetera, et cetera. Specially trained agents were huge number of them. I have the, the, the number in my quote from Bernstein in my book. A massive number. So what that did, see, so, so when people say to you, oh, that's a conspiracy theory, they are uh, totally clueless. They are forever clueless. Forever clueless because you can't see a potential future where they wake up in many cases. But here, here's a, good, a blast of good news. And the good news is, the status quo in terms of the collective consciousness of America, in other words, that's a fancy way of saying the collective mindset, the accepted narrative that people believe. So like, I would probably say at least 50% or higher of the American people believe in the narrative that mankind and the human race and all life on planet Earth is a product of uh, 
Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. So everything that came about, like you and me, the complexity of our our uh, creation, you know, eyes, ears, heartbeat, it just goes on and on and on. And uh, you, you, uh, the accepted accepted narrative is is that everything came about by pure accident or random chance. It would be like the equivalent of somebody being deliberately blindfolded and walked to a, a, a big uh, into one of the big casinos in Las Vegas where this individual decides to, to play a particular board game and bet, but he can't see the table. He can't see where the objects and the cards are moving. He can't look at people's faces to know if they're bluffing or they're nervous or whatever. So let us say hypothetically that this guy walks in blindfolded into one of the big casinos in Vegas, blindfolded, doesn't, can't see what's going on, has no visuals at all. Therefore, he's kind of incapacitated in terms of, even if he's good, at, even if he's a, like a professional gambler or whatever, there's no way, statistically, that he could win flying blind. Okay, So what do you think would happen if uh, he argued or somehow mysteriously uh, after 15 minutes at a table or let's say 30 minutes at a particular table in Vegas in a casino, 30 minutes later, he, he cashes out his chips or whatever for, let's say, they're betting really high. Uh, for $350,000. Okay. Nobody, the mob, corporations, whatever, nobody, absolutely nobody in that casino in charge of security. They got cameras everywhere. New digital cameras, sound recorders, absolutely everywhere. I mean, beyond your wildest imagination. And it's all being monitored not only by people in in secluded uh, control rooms, but but those people are only zooming in and, and doing close-ups on potential problems that they've already been alerted to. So how is it that they are able to conduct effective electronic surveillance on a whole bunch of uh, gambling? Uh, tables, boards, card games, roulette wheels, slot machines, and all the activity that's going on in a gigantic casino. How can you possibly? You mean you have to have a, like a massive staff? Well, they ha- they're using the latest and the greatest in computerized artificial intelligence data gathering, and this data gathering is driven by artificial intelligence and computers, and it surveys faces in seconds, and it can give you a, a identity check many times if the person served in the military or has a driver's license or whatever in, in, a, in a very short period of time, in a matter of minutes. Uh, camera does a close-up on somebody's face, and they can get a readout of the person's birth date, their social security number, their criminal history, blah, 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 blah. So that's so. So if the person was arrested, let's say, 
you know, gambling-related incidents that they, that would be flagged. But they were they were first alerted. The, the human staff was alerted by artificial intelligent computers, and these artificially intelligent computers can also detect through the tone in the voice if a person's nervous or angry or whatever. The the artificial intelligence and if the person obviously people in real life are not wearing, you know, a, a dark black scarf over their eyes so they can't see. People in real life in a in a casino, you know, are either wearing glasses, contact lenses, or just their plain eyes. And the the artificial intelligence computer can read, identify people by just doing a biometric ID check by reading the eyes of people going in and out. And then the artificial intelligent computers can read the musculature of the face. In other words, your face is composed of, of muscles, and if you're, you've got a migraine, you probably have wrinkles on your forehead that are intense. If you're a worrier, you have wrinkles on your, on your forehead, or you can have a quivering lip, or a, your, your face projects a, a vast spectrum of communicating inner data about your emotional, psychological state. You're just like transmitting it. And computers that have artificial intelligence software can read people. And not only that, they are, they are using the latest and greatest developments in technology, which means that they can uh, detect measure and monitor the specific numerical electromagnetic frequencies that each individual sitting down at a gambling table or whatever is generating. Now, I don't know if they can get, I know the military can, but I don't know if the casinos can, so they probably can. They can identify people because every person is a broadcaster of their own unique and different numerical electromagnetic frequency. It's just as unique to you. You're always broadcasting it 24-7. It's just as unique to you as your thumbprint or your fingerprint. So they can read that and also ID you. But in addition to that, they have moved into the area of, yes, it's true. It's not a conspiracy theory. Take a deep breath. Because if you bring it up, your friends are going to call you crazy and a conspiracy theorist. Who cares what your friends call you? Because they are uh, forever clueless. So the artificial intelligence software can read the numerical electromagnetic frequency number that you're generating, like, you know, hypothetically 10HZ, which is an alpha wave. But it would be more defined and complicated than that. And that would, 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 communicate to the computers and to the casino your state of mind. Are you nervous? Do you have high anxiety? Are you thinking of doing something violent? Are you serene? Are you tranquil? Are you peaceful? Are you happy? Are you joyous? Do you have depression? I mean, the electromagnetic frequency and its numerical number communicates a wide range of data and information about your psychological, biological, and emotional state. And all this can be used as the deterrent against terrorism, but also big buck operations like casinos use them 
to to control so they're not getting ripped off. Okay, so with all this stuff going on, um, 30 minutes later, the guy that's blindfolded walks, attempts to walk out of the casino, cashing in his chips. Somebody's leading him. But he still has the, the mask on or the, the, the black handkerchief or whatever. So he can't see visually. And so security, obviously, is already there. The top security people are already there. Multiple cameras are zooming in on this guy, reading all kinds of data. And the question is, the statement is, there's no way, with all this sophisticated electronic surveillance equipment, the fact that this gambler was basically flying blind, the fact that he only stayed at the table 30 minutes, and you have all these readouts of data about his state of mind, etc. With all these checks and balances, there is absolutely no way the casino owners and their top people concur. There's no way you walk into our casino, whether it's a, a Steve Wynn casino or any of the big casinos on the Strip in Vegas. There's no way you can win like that. No way. It's an impossibility. I don't know what the odds are, but they would be, but let me make up, let me just make up arbitrarily. And if I'm off, you know, you can email me, correct me if you're, if you're, if you're a former gambler or good at statistics and gambling or something, you might know on the top of your head. But let's just say hypothetically that it's a million to one, and I'm being generous, a million to one that he could have won the game just playing it honestly and being blindfolded. So if he is trying to walk out with $350,000, they, they assume that with odds like that, a million to one against him, that the only way he could have won in 30 minutes $350,000 was he used some kind of method of cheating, highly sophisticated method of cheating, and probably had a partner or partners with him who could give him visuals he could have had, a, uh, you know, like a little earbud thing, a wireless earbud, uh, earbud thing. You know, you've seen it in the Tom Cruise movies, Mission Impossible. You've seen it in the James Bond movies. Somebody could be talking to him in that little earbud thing. And that person can see. And that person may, may be at, at a relatively far distance away, but they may be wearing glasses that have um, a wireless video camera and transmitter that is built into the pair of glasses, which can zoom in on the table and transmit the, the images of the playing cards or whatever, and the images of the people's faces. So how does this guy, because he's blindfolded, what good does it do? Okay, we, we, we understand that somebody could potentially be talking to him in the earbud, and I'm sure security's all over that. <clears throat> But what good would it do hypothetically if the uh, if they were zooming in on the facial expressions of the people? Because the guy can't see it. The earbud's not going to help him. Can't hold up his cell phone when his when he's blindfolded and look at the image. So they're trying to figure out what technology did he employ? How did he? 
beat the system? How did he cheat? Because the guy's entire strategy is based on, obviously, utilizing or incorporating brand new technology in the hope, even that is a bet, in the hope that the casinos are not yet up to speed on this advanced technology. And that's a stupid presumption because most likely these big casinos are up to speed on the latest technology. So hypothetically, he could have cheated the system and he could have seen the the playing cards. He could have seen visually the playing cards. Do you hear what I'm saying? He obviously could hear an audio description in the earbud. But let's get back to the visual. How does he get a visual when he's blindfolded? Okay. He did his homework. The thief, the the, the gambling rip-off guys and girls, they did their homework. And they used high-tech electronic surveillance, which in this case consisted of, in our our parable-like story, it consisted of um, having some kind of neural implant or neurological implant or microchip implant or biochip implant or nanochip implant uh, located somewhere, embedded somewhere in his body or skull or somewhere where you can't see it. And with the latest technology, some of these embedded chips, whether it's a neural implant or some kind of nanochip implant, they can broadcast neuro they can broadcast an electromagnetic frequency into the electrical part of the brain, which is the whole brain. All the neurological activity of the brain is driven by elect- electro electricity and mag- magnetic material interacting. So you can broadcast into the brain from a distance visuals of the cards and the people's faces that he can see in his mind's eye, not his eyes, in his mind's eye. He can see with his brain. He can see with his consciousness. And so he can hear what is being communicated to him by his criminal partners in his brain. And he can see a visuals of the cards being played, the reaction of security, the, the, the facial expressions of the people that he's playing against, and he's getting all this data. So when push comes to shove, you can't really say that he's flying blind, because even though his eyes are completely covered up with a dark black like handkerchief type thing. The reality is he can see everything he needs to see because he's seeing not through his eyeballs. He's seeing through his brain activity, his consciousness and mind. Okay, so you 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 sweep the skeptics aside and simply notate the fact that this technology is already operational in its basic forms, not in its primitive forms, not in its early forms. This visual technology is up and running now. 
And every year that goes by, it's becoming the visuals and the audio and the ability of artificial intelligence and uh, transmission of an electromagnetic frequency, EMF, can literally now read your mind, project thoughts, ideas, and visuals into your mind. It's, this is not a matter of discussion, so don't, don't allow yourself to be caught in a debate. It's a done deal. There are pa patents on it. It's been invented. It's been embedded. And I'm not going to, you know, I would suspect that there's a lot of people who are very wealthy that have some kind of chip in them that, that can do that. So that's how it turns out they have technology. And they were able to read the transmission of the visual and the audio. So, so he didn't get to steal the money. But it shows you how outrageously hot. If you're just playing the game clean, it's a million to one odds against you that, or one in a million, however you want to phrase it, uh, you have one chance in a million. Or... You can say it in reverse and make it more complicated. But the point is, think of how, 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 how high the odds are against you. Now, take the theory of evolution, which says we all came to planet Earth by random chance accident over a 200 million year period, which is statistically, biologically, factually, utter, complete nonsense. It is a rape. It's, it's an abuse. It's a violation of the scientific method. You know, they're always blabbing. Trust the science. They are pathological liars. They are, do not trust the science. They're not even behaving like scientists because the foundation of modern science is this. It's not that I'm a scientist. It's not that I got a, a college degree in, in, in science, unless you want to call psychology a science. And that's debatable, believe me. But. Uh, I wanted to be a scientist when I was a young kid. I wanted to be either a rocket scientist or a nuclear physicist. Ironically, living here in Southern California, well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that alone. Um, but, but here's, there's no statistical possibility at all that mankind and, and creation evolved randomly through random chance evolution over a 200 and 50 million period of years. It's statistically impossible. It, it, and, and the scientific method, every kid learned it in school. Every scientist knows it. And when some idiot blabs out, trust the science, trust the scientists, if they're not adhering to the basic foundational principle of science, which is the scientific method, and it was Sir Francis Bacon. I write all about him. I do a deep dive into the life of Sir Francis Bacon and Sir John Dee. Sir Francis Bacon was given credit for being the father of modern science in the 1600s because uh, he um, invented and codified the scientific method. And as you know, the scientific method is simply a methodology which states this. Nothing can be proven true based on emotion, faith, opinion, belief, ideology, or whatever. That is not how your guess, your best guess, 
or whatever, whatever you want to call it, whatever non-rational means you attempt to use to arrive at a, uh, a so-called scientific law or conclusion, uh, the only way it can be validated by scientists is that they have to adhere to the scientific method. And that simply means that you must conduct research, you must conduct a series, and sometimes a long series of experiments over time, and you must have scientific proof that what your thesis is, what you're stating is true, like the theory of evolution. You've got to be able to prove it scientifically. So you have to have evidence. Evidence could be the, the amount of years. Evidence could be the existence of fossil records uh, discovered by scientists or archaeologists or whatever, that uh, fossil records that give evidence of transitional species. Let's say you, you see, I'm, I'm going you know, to exaggerate a little bit to, to make my point, but let's say you see a fossil of a dead frog, okay? And then you say that mankind, you know, million years later, evolved from the frog species. Human beings, homo sapiens, evolved over time from the frog species. Well, according to the scientific method, you have to have scientific proof to prove that. You can't just say that. So you look at all the fossil records on frogs and homo sapiens and all kinds of species. And after, and this is approximately how many fossil records they have collected, they have collected approximately 80 million fossil records, which shows the remains or the imprints or evidence of all these different species that were on or still are on planet Earth. And in their 80 million fossil records, they have never discovered one fossil that shows the missing link. The missing link they've been talking about forever. The missing link is simply. The acknowledgement, the acknowledgement by honest scientists that you still, whether you, no, no matter how emotional you may get about the subject of evolution versus creationism, you have to admit that there's no scientific evidence to prove evolution. Therefore, there's a missing link. You have all these fossil records, 80 million of them, but not one single fossil record shows any evidence whatsoever in terms of DNA, imprint, uh, uh, you know whether it was buried deep in, in the sand or compressed with rocks or found in the, in the depths of Antarctica, I don't know. You know, So they, they don't have a single fossil record that shows any evidence genetically or visually or any other way or any other way of, of determination. You have no evidence that one species ever evolved into another, spe another completely different species. And furthermore, you have no evidence whatsoever that any species ever evolved into a higher order of species. So it's a twofold knockout punch against evolution. There's no scientific evidence whatsoever to prove that any species ever evolved over time. And they try to cheat, just like the guy tried to rip off the casino. They try to cheat the system. By, they, they, keep, they keep coming back. They know they have a missing link. They know they have no fossil records that reveal scientifically and with evidence that, that any species ever evolved ever at any time. Okay? Therefore, they have a missing link, a missing connection.
They have no scientific proof that proves evolution. That's why they have to call it, and they bristle at this, they don't like it. They have to call it by law the theory of evolution. So it's not a fact. It's not a scientific fact. It's a theory, just like you have theories and I have theories. And a theory is nothing more than a theory. It's inconclusive. It's not proven. It's not foundational. And it's not factual. End of story. Because it's a violation. Wake up and smell the coffee. It's a violation of the basic prerequisite known as the scientific method, which is you must have empirical evidence. Empirical evidence is scientific proof, scientific evidence that is determined through measurement, temperature, uh, genetic codes, and all kinds of physical, tangible evidence. So they have no evidence that, that proves that evolution ever happened anywhere at any time. So the whole thing is a farce. It's just that, you see, people are insecure. I thank God this isn't bragging. But it's the grace of God, or you could say, you could say it's the grace of God, or you could say, this is all hypothetical, I'm just having fun with you here. You could say it's the grace of God, or it's, this is all hypothetical, it's the grace of God, or maybe his brain, I'm talking about me, Paul McGuire, maybe his brain doesn't neurologically function properly. And so maybe, I'm playing here, okay, I don't really believe that about myself. And I don't intend for you to believe that about myself, because that would be a falsehood. There's no scientific evidence to support it. But let's just play the game anyway. Well, maybe Paul McGuire neurologically doesn't have a perception feedback mechanism which allows him to perceive negative, critical, disapproving, and rejecting feedback from his peers. And that is... We, we, can't, we shouldn't really call him courageous and brave and bold or educated or smart or intelligent. No, 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 no. We don't have any scientific evidence on, on any of this stuff anyway. So let's just call Paul McGuire neurologically impaired. And I could, off the top of my head, give you probably five different clinical, uh, uh, psychological, psychiatric conditions where a person's mental feedback is impaired to whatever degree. Okay. Now, so so is it bravery on my part that I can I'm 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 in many senses I'm not totally immune, but largely immune to disapproval, rejection, naysayers, mockery, etc. It goes back to childhood. So so what is it? Or is it that Paul McGuire was really hungry for the tr truth, thought outside of the box like you do, or you wouldn't listen to me, um, thought outside of the box, and by applying the scientific method, honestly, because he was raised a secular humanist, an existentialist, I was raised to believe when I was a young child that evolution was true and that Christianity was total fairy tale nonsense. So you can't say, well, I was conditioned and brainwashed to believe the creation story. No, I was educated by my very educated parents and their friends to believe in Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. I wanted to be a scientist. So I did my homework, and I discovered that using the empirical method or the scientific method, where you must have scientific or empirical evidence, which is tangible, physical evidence that can be measured, qualified, quantified, tested, 
There is no scientific evidence whatsoever. And we're talking about, you know, there's carbon da- dating, which is uh, very unreliable. There's uh, um, the 80 million fossils. Not one of them have the missing link that show there's a crossover species. Not one piece of evidence among the 80 million fossil records have ever shown ever that any species on Earth ever evolved into another separate and distinct species. Okay? End of story. And then to to top it off, if you try to come up with the preposterous notion and non-scientific notion that uh, some kind of primitive species or semi-primitive species, like a frog, over time becomes a man or a woman, but you have no you have no fossil records, you have no scientific evidence, you can't prove it. Therefore, it's a theory, it's conjecture, it's an opinion. It's a pipe dream. It's like smoking a lot of dope, which I don't do. It's like smoking a lot of dope. Uh, My first year at the University of Missouri, I stayed in the dorms because I was from New York City. I couldn't stand the dorms for many reasons. So second year, I, you know, found an apartment off, off campus like a lot of people did. Because you know what was going on in the dorms at the University of Missouri? The guy directly across from me. Ironically, he got good grades, by the way. Ironically, he got good grades. But he'd have three or four of his pals in there, and they would smoke dope like Cheech and Chong. Now, some of you know who Cheech and Chong are, and if you don't, it's not worth explaining. But they would smoke dope like Cheech and Chong, which means they smoked a lot of dope. And, and, the smoke, and, and then they would listen to this stupid record. This is in the, this is in the days, the old-fashioned days of vinyl albums, you know, plastic vinyl records on a turntable with a needle, which, which, which are actually back in vogue. Um, so he would listen to this comedy album. It was called the Fire Sign Theater. You may never have heard of it. I never heard of it, but he listened to it all the time. And there was this one 20-minute, it was a bunch of comedy actors, like hippie comedy actors with noise effects and stuff. And, and I think the name of the album by the Firesign Theater that he played over and over and over again, I felt I was in an MK Ultra uh, reprogramming center, Pain, Drugs, and Hypnosis. Um, and if you want to know what that is, read A Prophecy of the Future of America, Volume 1. Okay, so, so they would laugh hysterically. The, the, the level of their laughter literally bordered on psychosis. They would laugh so hard. And the jokes were so stupid. The name of the album was, we're all bozos on this bus. And bozo, you know, is like bozo the clown. By the way, I have an obscure reference to, I think I have, I I don't know if I took it out in the final edit. I think I left it in. I have an obscure reference to when I was invited to a birthday party of friends when I was a young kid. And the birthday party, you could rent out a room at the CBS studios, the CBS network television studios in Manhattan. You could rent, the parents rented a room out for him to have a birthday party. I was one of the guests. But you, you got to be in the audience of the famous Bozo the Clown show. And I had an epiphany in that I got to meet Bozo the Clown. <laughs> that has nothing to do with anything. So let's go back to we're all bozos on the bus. The thesis was that we're all idiots and morons. We're just bozos on the bus, so we might as well just get stoned. Now, this guy was so high, his friends were so high all the time, 
laughing hysterically that, you know, at the, at the bottom of the wooden door to his dorm room, there was about, I don't know, a half an inch at least, uh, a crack of airspace. And the pot fumes and the pot smoke that, that poured out that uh, half inch gap between the door and the floor, it just, it flooded into my room and it flooded down the hallway. And, you know, fortunately, back then, I knew what a contact high was, and many of you probably do too. Contact high is when you're around people who are smoking dope like crazy. And even if you're, you know, in a room and they're, they're five feet away or whatever, and if the room is thick with marijuana clouds and marijuana smoke, you can get buzzed and you can actually get stoned unintentionally because it's a contact high. I really did not want a contact high because it wasn't some puritanical decision on my part. By that time in my life, I, I determined that I didn't want to sit around at some party with, you know, day glow lights, listening to Pink Floyd, All We Are is Another Brick in the Wall. It's a great song, but it's depressing. Hour after hour, everybody, you know, it'd be 35 people sitting in a tribal circle at somebody's house with all the lights off, except for the day glow lights, listening to some, like, sedative rock song. and passing a joint around. And if, if you wanted to be accepted by the group, if you wanted to be accepted by the tribe, you had to, to, to toke on the joint. And uh, I passed on it. I just had the, I just, I, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I wasn't going to be pressured into it. I didn't care what they thought of me. You know why? Because it made me paranoid. So why the hell, excuse me, when I, when I go back in time, sometimes I talk in the way that I talked uh, many moons ago at the University of Missouri. Um, why would I want to do that? So anyway, finally, enough of us complained, and he put big, thick blankets and towels and shoved them in the crack between the bottom of the door and the floor so the stupid marijuana smoke would, would stop funneling out of his room. Okay, that was a side trip, okay? The point is that that kind of... And by the way, this guy was smart, and don't ask me how he do it. Did it? He would, he would go for tests and finals and to get his grades, and he was diligent about all that. And even though he was stoned out of his mind 24-7, he performed. He was a high achiever academically. Now, I'm not telling anybody to, to model your behavior after his. He, he was just a quirk. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Okay, so the point is, that kind of madness, we're all bozos on this bus, that's essentially the mindset that is driving a politically driven scientific industry that has no scientific evidence for evolution, but claims it's a scientific fact because they have no empirical scientific evidence. And without, according to Sir Francis Bacon, if you don't have empirical scientific evidence that can be measured by your physical senses, such as seeing and smelling and tasting and touching, and the usage of mathematics and primitive microscopes and stuff. If you don't have scientific evidence, you don't have empirical evidence, and you don't have your theory has to be remain frozen in time as a theory. Now, here's the weird thing about Francis Bacon and Sir John D. Sir Sir Francis Bacon and Sir John D. Sir John D. Being the father of the scientific method, the father of modern science. As many of the intellectuals and the scientists were of, of that time period and later, secretly, Sir Francis Bacon and Sir John Dee lived double lives. Publicly, they were secular humanists, they were rationalists, 
They adhered diligently to the scientific method. They were highly, highly respected around the world. I mean, highly respected. It would be like being Albert Einstein in our, our generation, you know, the physicist who developed the theory of relativity, E equal mc squared. Um, they were heavy-duty scientists, although most, pe- most people thought that. But secretly, Sir Francis Bacon was a deep, deep occultist, and Sir John Dee was even a deeper occultist. And they communicated with spirit guides. They participated in occult rituals. And, and they actually got a lot of their ideas and knowledge and theories, not from the scientific method. They got it from channeling these entities or spirit guides. And I tell, I, I tell, I expose the hidden secret story of Sir Francis Bacon, because he's one of the most pivotal figures in Western civilization. I tell the secret story. I expose it about him and Sir John Dee, because it has everything to do. This is why I get so impatient with Christian institutions that are so, oh, dear God, they're just so impoverished when it comes to the development of knowledge, which gives us power. So secretly, they were occultists, and they were channeling and getting these ideas and guidance and direction from what they called the Enochian or the Enochian angels. Now, the Enochian or the Enochian angels goes all the way back to Enoch in the uh, Old Testament. And remember, God gives us permission in the New Testament. Um, there are several scripture verses which refer to an extra book of the uh, an extra book of the Bible. That means it's not it's this book, the Book of Enoch, is not considered part of the Orthodox Christian faith uh, of of biblical books like Genesis and Revelation and Hebrews and so on and so forth. The Book of Enoch is a extra book of a biblical book, but obviously God is telling us that it's okay for us to look at it to a limited degree because. God, in his word, references the book of Enoch and specifically references passages in the book of Enoch that reveal the existence of the fallen angels. The fallen angels who, who, according to the book of Enoch, descended upon Mount Hermon, which is near uh, Israel, and there were 200 fallen angels that descended upon Mount Hermon. When you're flying into Jerusalem, you can see the, the gigantic snow-covered Mount Hermon, where the, uh, the fallen angels, 200 fallen angels descended. And these, two, these 200 fallen angels became enraptured and fell in love and fell in lust with human women. And so they violated God's order and mated and some say married, but the point is they mated or had relations with human women, and the human women gave birth to a hybrid race that was no longer 100% genetically a human being. The hybrid race that the human females gave birth to was an offspring between the mixing of the DNA of the fallen angels which impregnated the DNA of human females, thus producing a hybrid race or a mixed race genetically 
of two entirely, two radically, entirely different species, which later on become the Rephium and the Nephilim and the fallen angels that we keep reading about throughout Scripture. Now, as we dive deeper now, I start laying the foundation for people to understand the complexities, complexities of this in my book, A Prophecy of the Future of America, and then Conquering the Matrix, and then uh, The Day the Dollar Died, and then The Greatest Battle for the Hearts and Minds of Mankind in the History of the World, and then uh, Power from on High, and A Prophecy of the Future of America, Volume 1 and Volume 2, and Are You Ready? And the Babylon Code, which I wrote with Troy Anderson, and Trumpocalypse, which I wrote with Troy Anderson, and The Warning, and other books. Because you cannot understand the Bible without understanding the mixing of fallen angel DNA and human DNA. Because that is what is happening now on steroids all across planet Earth, as you have the transhumanist plot. To, to modify human DNA to, to create uh, synthetic human beings with synthetic human DNA. And so these synthetic human beings are not real human beings. They are called by the transhumanists synths, S-Y-N-T-H-S. And I write, expose this, I expose the dark secret of this in my book, uh, Power from on High. And it, it goes a lot further than that. This is the reason, if you, you know, it's amazing how Christians will waffle and wiggle and get uncomfortable and will not belly up and stand up for the truth. Admittedly, it's very uncomfortable to be asked the question, which you will be asked, if you haven't been asked this question already a hundred times by your children and friends, how can a loving God do all these apparently horrible things? Such so, for example, they'll say, How can the loving God of the Old Testament, who's supposed to be the same God in the New Testament, how could a loving God order the Jewish warriors like Joshua and Caleb and the other warriors to go into the land of Canaan? and literally slaughter and kill hundreds of thousands of hybrid uh, uh, fallen angel, hybrid human-female DNA, otherwise known as the giants of old, otherwise known as the Rephium or Nephilim. So, so the, the, the humanist reaction is to be outraged, and the humanist reaction is to be upset and say, this is disgusting. God is cruel. You worship a savage, primitive God. You're some kind of weird sociopath fundamentalist. That's what they're, they're telling you right to your face. That's what they believe in the educational system. That's why they are targeting your children for massive indoctrination that literally is designed to shatter their Judeo, whatever is left of their Judeo-Christian belief system. They use hyper-pornographic sexuality that is totally off the charts in terms of visuals, video, audio, uh, classroom lecturers, encouraged. They're encouraged for crying out loud when the parents aren't there to go out and do all kinds of stuff sexually. And, and they, are, they are programmed and encouraged and told and celebrated and applauded that you need to discover your best self and that 
forget about you know your the genetic code which which made you uh, physically a male or a female. Just chuck that out the window. Whatever you think you are, you are, and they uh, urge you to get the proper medical and surgical uh, treatments to transition into whatever sexual identity you choose. And all of this is the new normal. This is part of the Great Reset. Okay? But what you need to understand, and you need to understand it really, really good, not be like, you know, we're all bozos in this bus in a pot-filled room in a dormitory laughing your head off like an hysterical fool. You need to know this really, really good. That the primary objective, the strategic end game, the master plan, or what we could call the secret plan, or the covert action that is targeting your children and targeting adults via the media, via education, via the music industry, via many other, via the metaverse, and I'm not just picking on the metaverse. Any form of of uh, alternative realities, virtual realities. There's many technologies that offer that, not just the metaverse. And so, this is a full frontal assault on your child and adult consciousness, Judeo-Christian belief system. The, the velocity. You, you, I need you to track with me. I'm not being arrogant. I am, I am overwhelmed, not with worry. I'm not overwhelmed with fear. I'm telling you as your brother in Jesus Christ, I t- I'm telling you with the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of truth within me. I'm telling you as an ordinary man, just like you're an ordinary man or woman. Or if you want to go somewhere else with that, I don't have time to discuss that right now because I'm discussing something else. It's not that it isn't worthy of discussion. It is. But a two-minute discussion wouldn't do anybody any good. So, so the end game, the covert strategy, you say, why is this stuff is like insanity compared to every other generation? And guess what? The kind of thinking that is being promoted as the new normal in the schools with the proliferation of ultra, ultra hardcore pornography of every kind. And all kinds of ideas, they're just off the charts. Um, the, per, the, the real agenda behind that, now, now, I want you to take a deep breath, like I'm going to take a deep breath. And I'm not going to shout the answer. I'm going to speak calmly. Okay? But I want you to know that what I am sharing with you now comes right from my heart. Comes from a burden of the Holy Spirit of God, which is the spirit of truth. I have an ever-increasing and awakening burden from God Almighty, uh, energized by the Holy Spirit. And you listening to the Paul McGuire Report, wherever you are, the reason you're listening to me, the reason you feel that pull to listen to this show, there's a supernatural element that's going on here. The reason you, you, you feel that supernatural pull, that supernatural tug, to listen to this show, the Paul McGuire Report, all over the world. The reason that 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 that, that we're kind of bonded together spiritually—that's not your imagination. What that is is that is the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. That's the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Truth, 
without our full understanding of, of the process, God is is knitting us together as one in the spirit, as one in the supernatural body of Christ for a higher purpose and a higher agenda. And that is why you feel this almost imperceptible gravitational pull to to go to different social media sites and listen to this program. Many of you listen to it over and over again, or or the videos, or read the books. You feel this pull, and you can't quite uh, tag it. Now, I've experienced the same thing. Not with the ministry that the Lord has entrusted me with, Paradise Mountain Church and Paul McGuire Ministries, but there are that that throughout my life there have been those glittering jewels from the kingdom of God. That handful of men, and in some cases women, that handful of men and women who were true disciples of Jesus Christ, who were truly faithful to the Word of God. This lady that has been listening to my program for years was kind enough to write me and encourage me. And you know what? I never thought encouragement would help me, but it does. It does. I must tell you, uh, anybody who, who's doing what I'm doing, and you know other people that are doing a, a similar thing, and some of them are very good at it, and some of them are not very good at, good at it. But I never thought how valuable and how life-giving a kind word spoken in truth, not flattery, a kind word spoken in truth, because any man or woman who stands up on the, the, the watchtower and blows the trumpet is going to be the target of assault attacks spiritually and physically. She wrote me this kind note, as so many of you do. I try to read every letter, email, or whatever that comes through. I try to pray for every single person. I can't honestly tell you that I succeed in doing that because I'm overwhelmed. We're a small ministry, but we are an efficient ministry. There's just a few of us, which means most of us are exhausted most of the time. But that's the way God wants it. So the thing is that um, she was kind enough. I was, I'm very familiar with this famous Bible teacher. He's passed on now because he, he had a regular radio program, and he was on the stations that I were on, that I was on for years. And I, I used to habitually listen to him, so it would be like my audio Bible study. Even though our theology was both solidly biblical, I would say we had slightly different emphasis in our theology. But you might know his name. His name was Dr. Vernon McGee. And he, he still airs his ministry, this 30-minute program. Uh, I don't know what it's called, and it's something about getting on the Bible bus. And he methodically teaches the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I don't know if it takes him a year or something along that time frame. And he just systematically uh, does expository Bible teaching, going through one chapter, another chapter, another chapter of the Bible. And then he starts all over again. And he's helped millions of people because it's very simple. Now, my approach is different because we live in a different time. Uh, but I respect him. And she was kind enough to say that she included me uh, along with people like Dr. Vernon McGee as the people that really helped her in her Christian walk, really helped her learn the word, and, and gain spiritual victory. And I, I'm telling you, I can't tell you how humbled, how uplifted, how refreshed I was to read that. And thank her, and I want to thank every single one of you. You know, 
I do the best I can do as one guy, um, often running on empty. I'm not talking about spiritually, but just physically. And uh, I try to read everything that comes. My wife hands me the notes. You know, when people write me a letter, I don't read the letters just because somebody enclosed a donation. I read the letters whether it's a donation or not. I pray for people whether there's a donation or not. You know, you know what I'm saying? I want you to know that. And so I try to read as much as I can. And so often, it'll, I never thought this would happen, but it, it, it lifts me up. It gives me the courage to keep going. Because anybody who's in this position, and many of you are, and you know others who are, we are attacked constantly. And, and by the way, the Apostle Paul had to speak this way to the churches in Corinth and other places. So I'm not out of biblical order. Some person gave me a nasty thing. And that's just part of it. I mean, I don't care. Write me a nasty note. And I'm not mad at you, but I'm just going to tell you this. At the judgment seat of Christ, the only thing God is going to evaluate is what you did for Jesus out of a pure heart. Okay? That's what's going to happen to every Christian when you face Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. So if, if basically all you did was use your energy, your time, or whatever to, to take shots at people like me and others because we weren't perfect, this guy was, I think it was a guy, he was upset. Oh, he thought I was being proud and condescending because I asked people to listen closely. I guess in his mind that, that if he interpreted that to, to mean that I perceived myself as better than others because I said, I'm, you know, I want you to listen to me closely. That subtle sentence, which he misinterpreted because he judged falsely the motive of my heart. He assumed falsely that that was a position of pride, of which it was not. It was a position of love, a position of concern, and a position of urgency. So when I repeat myself, people say, you always repeat yourself. You're darn right I do, because I've learned after 50 years of communicating that the overwhelming majority of people don't hear you the first time because we're in a collective social media, computer, internet, mass ADD, ADHD society. So nobody hears what you say the first time, and maybe they don't hear what you say the second time. So you got to really make sure that they're locking in with you. And so you got to do icebreakers and you use techniques to, to get people to focus their attention on what you believe, like me, is a critical, important truth that will really help them in their lives. It's not a matter of pride. It's a matter of caring, okay? Because it's certainly not building my pride. I get criticized all the time from people that, that know me and love me very closely, <laughs> okay? Why do you repeat yourself all the time? Because I've been on radio, I've been on television, big deal. Because I talk to people, and inevitably, they are zoning out the first or second time I say it. That's all. That's all it is. Now, occasionally somebody will, sometimes the Lord will correct me with what somebody says or whatever. And then, just like you, I'm faced with the challenge of discerning whether this correction coming from someone is truthful, it's valid, is it something the Lord wants me to hear and adjust my behavior based on their correction. I simply don't open myself up to be corrected by anyone. I discern the spirits, and I, I, however imperfectly, so I'm telling you, I'm admitting to you, it's, I'm doing this imperfectly, however imperfectly, I try to humble myself before the Lord. I try to have a humble heart 
when talking uh, to to my fellow believers. Okay, I don't do it perfectly, but I because because my I'm from New York. My my autopilot reaction is, you come against me, it's like instantaneous warfare, and I'm not going to take prisoners. No retreat, no surrender. I can't help it. It's a New York thing, but I've given that to the Lord, and I'm trying. I'm telling you, I'm growing because don't want to be arrogant and pride in the true sense of the word and miss a word of correction that really may be from the Lord. And and, and, and in this other case, and the way you can always tell whether uh, or not something is from the Lord that's spoken in your direction, is that the voice that is speaking to you from the Lord, even if it might be a, mo- a suggestion that you modify something or correct something or change something, that voice is always speaking to you the truth in love. That's how you know it's from the Lord. And the end result is to build you up and to equip you, not to demolish you, not to make you a speed bump. I'm a speed bump for Jesus, and I'm just going to praise God every time a, a, a F-150 goes flying over the speed bump, or what is it, the F-350? I don't know. Is there an F-350? I think there is. These monster trucks, man. Or the big. Uh, uh, is it a Chevy? I don't know what it is. I like trucks. I like old cars. So, so you know, with the big ram's horn and the ram on the front. Um, so I try to have a humble heart because I want to have a teachable spirit. And the day I stop having a teachable spirit is the day I truly will succumb to pride. But you don't protect somebody from pride by, by taking out your blade and, and uh, you know, making a, a quick work of them. Okay, enough of this. The, the, the critical thing here is the end game. The end game is that we can transform our society. And I always have to be very precise because what I'm talking to you right now is, I believe, one of the primary strongholds in the invisible realm, in the realm of men's hearts and minds, in the realm of their intellect, in the realm of education, philosophy, in the realm of the media. Now, remember, uh, a, a good definition for the biblical term stronghold is a stronghold, and this is something my spiritual father, Jack Hayford, taught me, Dr. Jack Hayford, who's going on to be with the Lord. Pat Robertson, who I did a number of uh, New Age conferences, Bible prophecy conferences, appeared on the 700 Club a bunch of times. Pat Robertson just went on to be with the Lord. God bless both of these men and all the other men. And then Chuck Smith, who I became good friends with in the last uh, two to three years of his life. We would we would sneak off together at his direction. He generously would pay for the lunch, and it was a good lunch. And we would talk about everything, man. We would talk about heavy, serious stuff that I can't, I can't divulge because it would violate his trust. So Pastor Chuck Smith and I became good friends. Um, and, and all of these things were, were a blessing. Okay, so the critical thing here is that we are in this war for, for the hearts and minds of mankind. Truth versus error. So, truth is like like getting full disclosure. Truth is not simply accepting at face value the programming, getting allowing the puppet masters to, to pull your strings, allowing the globalist elite. Let me tell you something about the globalist elite. They are evil. They are evil because their 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 fruit is evil. They have Nazi money and globalist money flowing through their veins. 
the globalist elite, the World Economic Forum, the New World Order, the One World Government. It's all based on Luciferianism. They call their whole gig the plan. And I hear these idiots, not naming names, Christians and non-Christians, saying, we need to trust the plan. We just need to go with the flow and we need to trust the plan. You fool. Yeah, that's right. You fool. The plan was created by Madame Blavatsky and Alice Bailey, who were two of the most powerful occultists and Satanists in the world. And they formed the secret satanic religion uh, upon which the United Nations and the globalists uh, have built their plans for a new world order on the teachings of Alice Bailey and Madame Blavatsky. And both of these ladies, Blavatsky was a Russian occultist, key in the Theosophical Society. Alice Bailey was an occultist. Alice Bailey received all of her supernatural teachings channeling a Tibetan spirit guide. And Blavatsky also channeled a Tibetan spirit guide. They formed an organization um, way before 1948, uh, when the United Nations was built, funded by Rockefeller money. They formed an organization prominently located on the grounds of the UN called Lucifer Publishing to publish books on Lucifer, Satan, and indoctrinate world leaders and movers and shakers into Satanism and Luciferianism. Public heat came down upon them, and they just camouflaged it, and today it's called Lucifer's Trust. I've read those secret documents. If you dig, you go to the United Nations website, you look through the—they they hide it, so you've got you to do a little work, a little toil, and you go into the archives— of the past, their archives, the UN archives, of the historical past of the UN, and you find out about how it's rooted and grounded in Satanism, Luciferianism, and the occult. And it's bad stuff, baby. It's bad. Bad to the bone. Very bad to the bone. And these are the people that are running our world. It was Blavatsky and Bailey, and then there was another woman, I forgot her name. This lady was equally as bad, and I I quote all of these ladies and their teachings. I disclose their secret occult plan and their teachings. Oh, the famous, infamous futurist Barbara Marks Hubbard was also in this group. And she, in her book, raves and praises all the most demonic dictators in recent history. So she she lavishly praises Chairman Mao, who killed about, you know, uh, 250 million people by shooting them to death, starving them to death, massacring them. Uh, She praises Adolf Hitler for wiping out 35 million people in the Holocaust. Uh, Barbara Marx Hubbard uh, praises uh, Stalin and Lenin, the Russian communist revolutionaries who killed around 400 million people by shooting them to death, starving them to death, sending them to mental hospitals sending them to concentration camps in freezing Siberia. She praises these people, and she, she basically calls them saints and, and enlightened masters leading the human race to the new eon. And eon is spelled A-E-O-N. The new eon simply means the new age. And that was a term coined by the great Satanist, Aleister Crowley. He, he conceived the new Eon or the new Aeon. These people are evil. And in their doctrinal statements, which are satanic and Luciferian, like Golden Dawn, and then the Nazis got into it. How do you think the Nazis got their 
mind control technology, their rocket technology, their uh, uh, genetic eugenic technology. And, and let's just remember that eugenics is the science of systematically weeding out uh, by killing them off anybody that the Nazis perceived were part of an inferior race or people they thought were mentally inferior or physically inferior. The Nazis killed off homosexuals because they believed that they were inferior. Christians didn't. You never hear that. The Nazis did. So eugenics, you see, the elite in our world, uh, somebody who was a member of the elite, high up, and he would uh, he had relationships with the, the Illuminati elite because he and his wife were professional horse breeders, and they bred some of the finest racehorses in the world. So, so that is of compelling interest to the globalist elite and the Luciferian elite, because they're into eugenics and breeding, uh, you could call it a master race among horses, and genetically manipulating the DNA to breed winning racehorses. And they apply this science to human beings. Okay, so the Nazis just carried it out. They wiped out anybody that was considered inferior. So let's flash forward to today. This plan, the plan, is still in operation. Want to know what's happening? Understand the purpose of the plan. They, they told you, eyes wide open, not eyes wide shut. They told you with the Georgia Guidestones. They said, and they wrote it in, in stone. I think they blew it up recently because it was, it was too incriminating. They said that they're going to reduce the Earth's population in a very short period of time from 6 billion people down to 500 billion people. The only way you can drop the Earth's population down from 6 billion people to, to, to 500 million people is by inflicting mass death. So when you read the intellectual, scientific, and spiritual and philosophical writings of the Luciferian elite, people like H.G. Wells, the science fiction writer, people like um, um, the author of Brave New World and his brother, Julian Huxley, the father of transhumanism, the head of UNESCO, people like Bertrand Russell, the militant mathematician and atheist, uh, uh, and on and on and on. All these globalist elites like Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission. And by the way, if you want a high-speed, fast-moving, and interesting, and compelling, and revelatory, I don't know if that's a word, understanding of, of, this, of what we're talking about, my books sequentially give you what I call a download from heaven. And it's a supercharged download that will educate you and expand your perception, your awareness, your intelligence, and your knowledge power on a quantum level. Get my books. It's a small investment, 34% off for crying out loud. I pay for this shipping. We have, just so you know, we have been shipping overseas to various nations. People are ordering large boxes of my books because they use it as Bible study material. They're starving for real truth. But every time I send out one of these large boxes of my books overseas, I lose an average of $100 and $150, if it even gets there. Because the goal is not money. I'm seeding the truth in nations that, that are trying to stamp out the truth. You understand? And I need you to help me in doing this. But now I'm in America, and America has, has become hostile to the truth. And so 
This program, the books, the videos, the, the, the speaking, is designed to plant seeds of truth in a biblical worldview. It's designed to, in a spiritual level, overwhelm the plan with Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. That's our end game: is to bring in a last day soul harvest. July 4th is coming up. I've been praying all night long for hour after hour after hour after hour, seeking the Lord, allowing the Lord to brew in my heart with his presence, asking the Lord to to give me a message for his people that is directly applicable to the prophetic uh, uh, time zone that we are now in. So as we move on to July 4th, I had a, a, a vision, and I've only had a few visions in my entire life, because I have a strict standard for designating a vision. July 4th, 2012, and it's in my books and it's in the videos, I had a vision from God about an authentic biblical revival and an authentic biblical third grade awakening that moved from the West Coast to the East Coast. It was not God telling me that, Paul, a revival and a third grade awakening is a slam dunk, it's a done deal. So just kick back, fall asleep, and I promise you it's going to happen. God was not saying that to me. I went to great efforts to be accurate, and I said what God, I believe what God was saying to me is, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves before me and repent of their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land. What the Lord was telling me was that America and American Christians are, are at the pivotal turning point. If we will cry out to him in repentance with all of our hearts, if we will intercede to God, if we will repent of our sins, and I mean the big sins. If you're spending all your time repenting over and over again because you lit up a cigarette, it may not be good for your health, but that's not the big sin on God's map. The big sins are adulterating his word allowing false doctrines into the church, like critical theory developed by the Nazis and critical race theory developed by Marxists. That, those are the big sins. By adulterating the Word of God, by not teaching the book of Revelation faithfully, and what it says in the book of Revelation is that if you do not teach the book of Revelation faithfully, it says this in, in the beginning of Revelation, and it says this at the end of the book of Revelation. It essentially is saying, I'm summarizing for you, that if you do not teach the book of Revelation faithfully, or if you fail to teach the book of Revelation at all, and you censor the book of Revelation from your people, God says, this is how severe a transgression our holy God perceives this as. God says in the book of Revelation, two to three times, he says, if you fail to teach the book of Revelation, and if you do not teach the book of Revelation accurately, or if you just decide to modify or change the plain meaning of my words in the book of Revelation, the Lord warns his people, his teachers, his pastors, and leaders that he will blot their names. He will blot your name out of the book of life. If your name is blotted out of the book of life, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot have eternal life. That's how serious a sin that is. So when we're repenting of our sins before God and asking him for revival, okay, I'm not promoting having dirty thoughts. I'm not promoting being greedy and materialistic and, and, and buying yourself uh, the, the highest-end Mercedes when you really can't afford it. 
or I, I'm not promoting if you had a 30 second, you know, uh, uh, R rated dirty thought. Those are sins. You need to ask God for forgiveness. No, no question about it. But those are not the primary sins. The primary sins are the sins of omission, the sins of silence, the sins of not standing up for the truth, which are allowing our children and our grandchildren to have their DNA modified. And if that occurs, they can never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is what breaks the heart of God. See, it's the big sins that involve the soul harvest, the teaching of the word faithfully, the, the saving of the lost. Those are the big sins. God doesn't want his church to be consumed with, with repenting over peripheral sins. He wants us to get to the heart of the matter. And if we do, if we will stand in the gap as intercessors, and if we will cry out to God, this is what the Lord showed me, then and only then, God will begin to pour out an authentic and biblical revival, and God will begin to pour out an authentic and biblical Third Great Awakening. The pilgrims and Puritans were faithful men and women of God who believed the Bible literally and cried out to God and stood for God. And because of the obedience of the pilgrims and Puritans, God made a covenant with America that is still in effect today. And it is the desire of God to use America and of the American church, whatever remnant that faithful percentage of the church may be. It, could, it may be only 1%, but God can work with a 1% that are faithful. God wants to use America as he intended from the beginning, as he, as he birthed in the hearts of the pilgrims and Puritans. This birthed the American dream, it birthed the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the freedoms that we have. We're the only nation on planet Earth where God embedded these powerful freedoms because of Bible-believing pilgrims and Puritans who stood for the faith and didn't hide in the corner like cowards. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, um, freedom of assembly, the right to bear arms. You say, what does arms have to do with it? Newt Gingrich, I don't agree with everything he said, but he wrote a brilliant editorial from a spiritual perspective, and, and, and it really slammed home. He said, none of your rights, like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and all the other things, none of your rights mean anything, Newt Gingrich said. None of your rights mean anything if you don't have the power and means to preserve your rights or the power and means to defend your rights. And he was talking about having a voting system that has integrity, where your vote and your rights cannot be stolen. And then he was talking about, this is Newt Gingrich, he was talking about, Newt was talking about the right to bear arms is essential. And people have been brainwashed into not knowing what that means. Although hunting is applicable, the right to defend yourself from some sociopath is is commendable in a law-abiding way, of course. But the, the the primary purpose that the Founding Fathers had in mind with the right to bear arms is that is the right that you have to defend and protect your freedoms from being stolen by tyrants, by the spirit of Antichrist, and by those that would seek to make you a slave again. Okay? But our primary task is our warfare is spiritual. Our warfare is spiritual. The most powerful weapons we have are not in the physical arena. 
although we don't divorce ourselves from the physical arena. The most powerful weapons we have are the weapons of our warfare that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. These are spiritual weapons. We can call down the angelic armies. We can call for the chariots of fire. We can call for God to raise up men like David who could, that will stand down the Goliaths of our time, Joshua's and Caleb's. God is pouring out his spirit in the last days. People, people with aggression challenge me on that. And I quote them scripture. I say to them, what? I don't say this. I'm not quite this blunt to them. I'm a, I'm a little bit nicer in person. But I say to them, what part of Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 do you not understand? That God promised in the last days that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. We're in the last days now. We're in the latter part of the last days. So how can you come to me and say, every revival, there can be no revival because it's all apostate revival. It's all the great apostasy. It's all the product of false prophets and false teachers. Oh, yes, we should be very concerned about the apostasy, false prophets and false teachers. But that should not bring us to the non-biblical conclusion that there can be no revival or no legitimate biblical third great awakening in the last days. Because the Bible happens to say the opposite. On one hand, the Bible warns us to be on our guard against apostasy, false teachers, false messiahs, false Christs, uh, false prophets, the great apostasy, the great delusion. On one hand, we are to discern the spirits and pick up the shield of faith. But on the other hand, not compromising the integrity of sound doctrine and scripture, on the other hand, Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 tell us, and I, I explain this and I apply it in my books at paulmcguire.us. You need to go there. Let me read you something in Acts chapter 2. Okay? We're running out of time. I hope, I hope we can. We're expanding. I need your help financially. We are at war, folks, spiritually. They want to stamp out any voice that intelligently communicates biblical truth. Therefore, they're at war with me and others. I cannot win this war by myself. I was not called to win this war by myself. We can only win this war as we, as we come together as the supernatural body of Christ, each one of us endeavoring to obey the Lord. And I mean radically obey the Lord. Times are serious. Okay, so let me read you Acts chapter 2, which is also, Acts chapter 2 is spoken of by Peter, and it's also found in Joel chapter 2, the prophet Joel. Okay, so Acts chapter 2. Starting at verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The critical spiritual truth that God is delivering to us is there is an exponential release of spiritual power and revival and evangelism when the Church of Jesus Christ obeys God, loves one another as Christ loved the Church, and when we choose to come together with one accord. That's a no-brainer. Own it. Possess it. Act on it. They were all with one accord in one place. Biblical unity, not counterfeit unity. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. This is the supernatural birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. Verse 3, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as, as the Spirit gave them utterance. I am not here to argue about tongues. I will not do it. I, I, all I heard was arguments about tongues. 
the first 15 years of my Christian life. I'm not going to do it. If you want to speak in tongues, speak in tongues. If you read the scripture and think that um, you shouldn't speak in tongues, then don't speak in tongues. Because whatever is not done of faith is sin. Okay? It's just that simple. But the real issue is not tongues. The real issue is you're commanded by God to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So whether you speak in tongues or not, that's fine on, on a, a different level. But first and foremost, you have to examine your heart to make sure you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the priority issue that God's talking about. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they were so, let's get, let's get down to it, they were so zapped with the power of the Holy Spirit, they were speaking in other tongues, that, that the, the, the Jews dwelling in Jerusalem and devout men that had come to Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, when, when they heard this, this sound and, and, the, and the crowd came together, all these visitors and, and, and spiritual leaders, they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now, a distinction here emerges, precision that we must abide with. The precision states that this particular outbreak of speaking in other tongues on the day of Pentecost by the disciples was a tongue language or a heavenly language that the men and women from many different nations under heaven who all spoke in different languages, they couldn't, it was, they, they heard initially confusion because they couldn't interpret the wide spectrum of languages. So what we see here in terms of biblical precision was that uh, there was a miraculous transformation. All of a sudden, the disciples didn't speak in gibberish anymore. The confusion was gone because supernaturally, God enabled them the disciples who were speaking in tongues, he transformed their tongues or their tongue language into the known and understandable different languages that these people spoke in in their native tongue. All these people could understand the words if it was spoken in their home language. And they heard the disciples speaking supernaturally in their own language. But naturally, the disciples couldn't possibly have known the myriad different many languages. So we see tongues, when it first is birthed, is connected to the fact that the tongues allow the disciples to speak coherently and fluently in a wide spectrum and diversity of different languages. And you can't just move on beyond, I mean, you just can't ignore that. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? So they were speaking eloquently, supernaturally, in the native language of the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, the, those dwelling in Judea, those dwelling, uh, dwelling in Cappadocia, those dwelling in Pontus in, in Pontus in Asia, and Egypt and Libya, and in Cyrene, those speaking in the Roman language those speaking in the Jewish language, the Cretans, the Cretan language, and the Arab language, we hear them speaking in our own, and I'm going to add, native and individual tongues, the wonderful works of God. Wow. Wow. 
I mean, wow, you know, this is like mind-blowing. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? And the scoffers among them, just like the scoffers today, verse 13, others mocking them said, they are all full of new wine, which basically was a put-down saying, the disciples are drunk. They're babbling idiots. They're laughing. They're carrying on like fools. It's early in the morning, and these guys are boozers. They're stoned and they're drunk, which is what they... There are many legitimate revivals. There are counterfeit revivals, too, but they're legitimate revivals. And I have heard legitimate biblical revivals dismissed as aberrational movements where people were on the Kundalini spirit. Well, that may be the case sometimes, but it's not the case 100% of the time. And precision requires accuracy. Rightly interpret the Word of God. So Peter says, he just meets them head on. So he tells these guys and girls, for these are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. He was saying to them, they're not drunk. This is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, specifically the Bible prophecy spoken of by the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2. That's what you're seeing, the fulfillment of prophecy. And then he reads, he, he, he speaks the prophet. Uh, Peter speaks out the prophecy from Joel chapter 2 because he's memorized it, starting at verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Okay, so it says it will come to pass in the last days. When was the last days? The last days began right here on the day of Pentecost. The last days has continued for uh, over 2,000 years. The last day, we are currently in the time zone of the last days. So don't tell me um, that God can't send a revival or a biblical great awakening or a biblical revival, because it says right here that during the last days, and we're in the last days, and there's been many biblical revivals in the last days. A case in point would be the, the Protestant Reformation, which birthed the pilgrims and Puritans in America. A case in point would be the Baptist revivals. A case in point would be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit all over planet Earth. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Supernatural. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And they weren't buying Soros finance marijuana. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. So God is saying through the prophet Joel and through Peter that he's going to pour out his spirit in the last days. That is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That is synonymous with a biblical revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it is synonymous with a biblical third great awakening. That's the outpouring of the spirit in the last days. It doesn't say anywhere that we can't have a biblical revival or a biblical third great awakening because the last days is over. What are you, crazy? You're totally misinterpreting the Bible. We're in the last days right now. Therefore, according to Joel 2 and Acts 2, according to God Almighty, we're in the time frame where God can pour out his Holy Spirit radically in a biblical revival and a biblical third great awakening. Wake up and smell the espresso. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And then it says, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Pouring out of the Holy Spirit in an unusual way constitutes things like the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and now very possibly the third great awakening. Um, And they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above, 
So signs and wonders is not exclusively New Age. Get it in your head. God is saying to to those that want to find Christ and to his disciples, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. I have seen that, and you have seen that with your own eyes. I have seen, I don't know how many blood moons in, in, in recent years, and I have seen the sun turned into darkness numerous times, and the moon into blood numerous times. I would suggest to you that that is not coincidental, but that is a prophetic super sign that is in total synchronicity with the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days. The signs of the times. The sun, the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood. Before and when? It's a prophetic sign that is to occur and you've all seen it, and I've seen it, it's a prophetic sign that's giving us a head up that before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, that's the return of the Lord, okay, which is going to happen at any moment. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, it shall come to pass. So these prophetic super signs that are grabbing the the, the attention of mankind are to wake them up so that they know where they are prophetically, Christ is returning, along with the armies of heaven, and it's time that we communicate the message, boldly and in love, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you call on the name of Jesus Christ, COVID, artificial intelligence, transhumanist cyborgs, androids, I mean, whatever it is, an asteroid hitting planet Earth, um, in the middle of all this stuff, you can call on the name of the Lord, his true name is Jesus, and God promises you, you shall be saved. You shall be saved from the wrath that is to come. You shall be saved from the judgment of God. You shall be saved from eternal damnation in the lake of fire. And don't give me this baloney that God is a cruel God and not loving, because God ultimately does not send anybody to hell or into the lake of fire. All the people including the fallen angels and Lucifer, and all the people who rebelled against God and took the mark of the beast, they chose, they chose with an act of their own will to send themselves to the lake of fire and into hell for all eternity. So you can't have it both ways. You can't blame God for being cruel and sending you someplace that you truthfully sent yourself there because you rejected his free offer of salvation and you steadfastly refused, even though you knew the consequences, you adamantly refused with an act of your will to call on the name of the Lord and and to be saved. I mean, that's it. There's a lot more. I need your help. The clock is ticking. Um, If we've run out of time, this ending segment is of vital, vital importance. So so if we have to, we're going to post this show uh, that's up to the, the web designer and master uh, how, how they want to do it. Uh, we are going to post the entire show, but we're also going to post this ending because the ending is the closer. All right. Now, my last words. We are in the last days. We're called by God to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, pray and facilitate a biblical revival and a biblical third great awakening. We are called by God to do this. We need to march forward in faith. It's a spiritual war. God has called selected people to take a stand, exercise leadership, 
and move forward and educate and serve the body of Christ. It's not a matter of pride. It's a matter of willing to die to yourself, humble yourself before God, and recognize that any leader in the supernatural body of Christ is first and foremost a servant. I am your servant. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't perceive or, or covet some kind of you know, coronation. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I am a bond slave to Jesus Christ. It is out of the context of my relationship as a servant, but yet simultaneously, I, like you, who am a disciple of Christ, in the core of my identity, God reveals to us, to us in the book of Revelation that, like Jesus was King of Kings and Lord of Lords, when he first came, he was a suffering servant. So I am to be a servant, and at the same time, I am to exercise the authority of a servant by being a priest and a king simultaneously. I am to serve and occupy my office in ministry as a servant king or a priest king. A priest serves. I am a priest king, and so are every one of you who have chosen to be disciples of Jesus Christ. As for women, I believe you could properly say a woman who is a disciple of Jesus Christ can function as a priestess. Uh, queen, not priestess in the sense of a cult, priestess in the sense of a female who is serving the Lord Jesus Christ out of servanthood, but has been given the supernatural authority as a queen. The primary, I believe, theological reference to that can be found in the book of Genesis, where we see the original man and the original woman, Adam and Eve, they were the co-rulers of planet Earth and the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve ruled and reigned planet Earth and the Garden of Eden, which was paradise, as functionally, positionally, and authoritatively, Adam and Eve were the king and queen of planet Earth. Adam and Eve were the king and queen of planet Earth. They ruled and reigned planet Earth. And God gave them the supernatural authority to do that. However, when any king or queen, forfeits the source of their power by rejecting the word of God or breaking the word of God, they are cut off from the supernatural power source, which gives them the authority to rule and reign and exercise servanthood dominion over planet Earth in the Garden of Eden, which is what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden. The fall of man occurred. Now, in our time period, there has been a power outage a power short circuit, if you will, between the supernatural body of Christ and those called to rule and reign in the power of Christ, those called to receive and walk in the dunamis, dynamite, explosive power of God, those called to be filled with power from on high and given the scriptural authority to rule and reign, which means to occupy the land until Christ comes. That is our job. But we have we have been uh, taken off track. We have been counterattacked in those efforts. The reason the attack occurred is we dropped our shields and we did what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. We, re we rejected the Word of God. We stopped believing in the truthfulness and the authority of God's Word, and we stopped abiding and obeying uh, God's Word in all areas. The result was there was a short circuit 
between us and the supernatural power of God, otherwise known as power from on high. The key to reigniting revival and a biblical great awakening and a biblical revival, the key of the kingdom that will release that power in the last days in the church, starting with you right now, you can sense the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you and surging into your being. If you say you don't, it's because you've hardened your heart against the power and the presence and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that is ministering to you now. Because I come to you humbly as your servant, Paul. I am a servant, and I am a priest king. I am to serve you as a priest, first and foremost. If I can't do that, I forfeit my right as an authority as king. You say, how can you call yourself a king? Because I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. There's a throne in heaven with my name on it. There's a throne in heaven with your name on it. We are joint heirs with Jesus for all eternity. Now. How we turn the spiritual battle around in America. This is, I'm talking about right now the release of awesome power. I'm talking about the release of quantum power. I'm talking about the release and spread of the love of God on a level the world has never seen before. And a release of the creativity of God, who is the creator, on a level never seen before. This battle for America is vital to global evangelism. It is vital to handcuffing the Antichrist and the false prophet for however long a period of time the Lord will grant us by his grace. At some point, prophetically, probably at the time we are removed from the earth, the Antichrist and the false prophet will close in on rebelling mankind, and they will deny Christ as God, and they will worship the Antichrist as God, and they will receive the mark of the beast and a powerful genetic modification that makes their DNA non-human, and therefore they cannot be saved, because salvation is only available to those that have 100% human DNA. Got it? If you've commingled your DNA with fallen angel DNA, you are a genetic hybrid. You can't enter the pearly gates. Okay? You can't get into heaven. You can't rule and reign with Christ. You forfeit your right to eternal life. You forfeit your title deed to paradise. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we have this infinite quantum power available to us. We have the authority of Jesus Christ. And right now, all hell is breaking loose in America and around the world. Child sex trafficking, murders, uh, you know, WMDs, cataclysms, massacres. I mean, just it's staggering. It's never has the signs of the times and it's never happened it's never happened like this before. You understand that, right? It has never happened to this level before. It's the birth pains that Jesus Christ talked about. When a woman uh, breaks water, and then however long it takes after that for her to start having the contractions, the painful contractions that come in some kind of time sequence, and she begins to experience incredible pain. And then finally, she begins the birthing process, and a baby comes out, a brand new creation from God produced by the sperm of her husband and the egg inside of her womb. God created that biological being. Every baby born is more than a biological process. They're wrong, the scientists and the sociologists. They have no idea what they're talking about. They profess to be wise men, the Bible says, but they are definitely as fools. When a man and a woman come together as one, and the sperm and the egg unite, 
It produces a biological being. But as the Bible says, more than the production of a biological being, that the Spirit of God comes into that uh, conception. The Spirit of God regenerates the conception between an earthly man and an earthly woman. The Holy Spirit attends that conception. And so every baby born from a man and a woman, every baby born is, has a soul, an, an eternal soul. And every baby born is an eternal being. The question is, will they spend eternity in hell or eternity in heaven? The choice is theirs. You can't blame God. You choose your destiny. But every baby born is holy to God. Now listen to this and listen well. And it's not condescending. It's, it's passion. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's straight from the heart. I'm talking to you straight from the heart because I can feel as I'm pointing my finger at the microphone, I sense that the finger of God is touching your chest and your belly. And God's his face, you know, there's sometimes where God puts his face like a loving Heavenly Father. It's just face to face, eyeball to eyeball, father to son, father to daughter in the purest, holiest way. So God has breathed his life, the Ruah, the life force. And the Spirit of God, which comes, it's, it's the Spirit of God attends that conception so that every man and woman born has an eternal spirit. Because physics tell us, tells us that in terms of energy, energy cannot be destroyed. Energy is eternal. Every baby born is an eternal being. The spirit of a man is eternal. And, and that means that you are going to live forever and ever. The question is, where will you live? Where will your zip code be? The new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, or the lake of fire, or God's supermax prison, also known as the lake of fire. And again, they chose to go there. You hear them laugh all the time. Ha, 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 Well, I want to go to hell. Oh, really? You want to go to hell? I want to go to hell. Because that's where all the fun is and the action is. And, and after all, all my friends are in hell. So I want to go hell to hell. You know what? Fooey on that stupidity. I have never seen a man or a woman die or get sick in my entire life who wasn't desperately afraid that they leave this world and end up in hell or some dark place and was not at least thinking about, is God real? Is salvation real? Is eternal life available to me? Behind all the bravado and the, 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 the chest thumping like Tarzan, except there's no Jane around. There's, it's, they're acting like big shots, but inside they're little weeping little children. It's a big, it's a big act. It's, it's a bluff. It's a bluff. Okay? It's a bluff. Every man or woman knows that God exists. That's why the Bible says, they, that means everyone who has rejected Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are without excuse, the Word of God says. Why? Because the law of God is written on their hearts, and the law of God is what tells you what's right and wrong. The law of God written on every man and woman's heart tells them that God exists, and it tells them that they're not right with God, and it convicts them. The law of God is written on the hearts of every man and woman alive. 
So they choose whether to accept God's free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. They choose by faith whether or not to accept or reject the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us of all sin. Now, I'm filled right now with the anointing of God. I'm filled with the presence of God. I'm filled. I am telling you, my friends, in the privacy of this studio, the glory of God has lit up this room, and I feel like I'm in heaven. I, I deal with many challenges that, that I'm not going to whine to you about. But right now, every cell in my body is dancing in perfect resonation with the frequency of God Almighty. Every, every cell, every organ, every tissue in my body, soul, and spirit is resonating with the glory of God. And so when the Bible says, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say rejoice, and the joy of the Lord is our strength. I right now, and you right now, if you'll, oh, some of you have already opened to it, but you right now, I am exhorting you as your brother in Christ to make the willful decision to open your heart and mind up to be filled with the glory of God, the presence of God, and allow the joy of the Lord to fill your soul. Supernatural joy, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And then rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. As you rejoice, what you're doing is you're cultivating. In a sense, you're dancing with the Lord of hosts. And that offends people. I can understand why, you see, because if you're a legalist and you have a religious spirit, as did Michael or Mikael, who was King David's wife. Remember when David was marching in triumph and all of Israel was cheering him for his incredible victories? And he was so overcome with joy and the anointing of the Lord that he was dancing in a pure and holy, uh, ecstatic dance form of worship. It wasn't New Age and it wasn't vulgar. But David, being a bold man's man, he wasn't a wimp. He, 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 you know, he probably underdressed. <laughs> he was wearing his loin, his loincloth. Now, just for some of you who are super legalists, a loincloth has a lot more cloth and covering than a jockstrap. Don't get the two mixed up, okay? He wasn't being vulgar. David was dancing with all his might, it says. David was dancing with all his might in his loincloth in the joy of the Lord. He was celebrating God's victory. That's why God called him a man after God's own heart. And the only man in the Bible that God called a man after his own heart was David. But King Saul's daughter was a legalist. She believed that every, everything you got from God was through your own self-works, which is the opposite of what the Old Testament and New Testament teaches. And so she was looking at, out the window and looking at her handsome, instead of appreciating the fact that God gave her a handsome man, a strong man, a brave man, to be her husband, she looked at David with disgust and contempt. She, she degraded David in her own eyes and in his eyes. She degraded him by perceiving him to be some kind of fool who was, was dancing like an idiot, half naked. And she despised David for being an idiot and dancing in a loincloth. And she really hated him for, for, expressing, for expressing such unabashed worship and emotion to the God that he loved with all his heart, soul, and mind. She hated him for loving God with all his heart, soul, and mind. And uh, David didn't care. Good for him. So, I'm not saying I'm David. I wouldn't want to be David. 
he did some really dumb things that cost him a lot. And just like, I'm, I'm, that's not, I'm not in that category. So I don't want to promote myself above who I am. But I'm telling you now in this studio, I feel like David. I'm not wearing a loincloth. I'm fully dressed, thank God. Huh? And I'm rejoicing in the Lord. And the presence of the Lord is in the studio. And I'm rejoicing in the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, because I know that all of us who are Christ, we are victorious. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, as David was. We are on the winning side. And our Messiah is at the door. And he's coming soon. And there'll be a trumpet blast soon. A trumpet blast soon. A trumpet blast that can be heard throughout all America. And the Lord is preparing for the armies of heaven riding horses to come with them in a mighty invasion as the Lord Jesus Christ, along with the armies of heaven riding horses, follow him. They are following Jesus, who is riding a white horse. And Jesus, riding a white horse, is coming down to the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it says on his thigh, in the book of Revelation, it says, faithful and true. The Lord Jesus Christ is described as faithful and true. Faithful means he's going to keep his word. True means it's all going to happen like he said it's going to happen in his word. And Jesus is preparing to descend on the primary source of military and spiritual conflict on planet Earth, which is the Valley of Megiddo, or the War of Armageddon, which is located in Israel, the Promised Land. This is the battle that is the final war. It's the War of Armageddon. It's an all-out war between God versus Satan, the angels of God versus the fallen angels, those people who sold their souls to the Antichrist and received the mark of the beast, people like the Illuminati who are fighting against the servants of God and those who have been saved and washed in the blood by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the final conflict, and Jesus Christ and the armies of heaven and all the people like you and me who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we will be victorious in Armageddon. And the devil, the false prophet, the Antichrist, uh, the fallen angels, the the weird transhumanist cyborg android, half-human, half-whatever, they are going to be either destroyed or sent into the lake of fire. And Jesus Christ will go to Jerusalem with King David as his co-regent. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign planet Earth. He will reestablish his rightful authority over planet Earth from the new capital of planet Earth, which will be Jerusalem, for a literal 1,000-year millennial reign, where Jesus will, with the help of his people, and it, this will not be a laborious task. It will be a celebration. Jesus will re, recreate planet Earth and the environment and, and make it like paradise again. The thousand-year millennial, thousand millennial reign will be like paradise again. Satan and evil will be confined. And it will be a great time of rejoicing. Now, why does this happen before the new heaven and the new earth come into being? Why does this have to happen, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, before the new Jerusalem comes into being? It has to happen because God has to completely, because he's faithful and true, God has to completely, completely fulfill his everlasting covenant to the physical descendants of Abraham, where he promised Abraham and his physical descendants 
that he would give them the land of Israel, formerly called Canaan. He would give them back the land of Israel as an everlasting covenant, which means everlasting, which means the children of Israel, the children, the physical descendants of Abraham, will possess Israel and all of Jerusalem, the entirety of Jerusalem. They will possess it for an everlasting covenant. Everlasting means they will possess it forever and ever and ever without end, without end. And so the thousand-year millennial reign is a fulfillment of the everlasting covenant. And then it, 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 it goes up to even a higher level where this fulfillment of the everlasting covenant and the, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ for a thousand years, it wondrously and supernaturally transforms to the, to the old earth burning up, the, the old heavens burning up because they're defiled, and God brings in a brand spanking new and glorious new earth and a glorious new heaven that's pure and radiant and filled with the glory of God. And then finally, God brings about this, it looks like a gigantic, beautiful, cube-like structure which hovers above the surface of the new earth. And it has many floors and gardens, and, and it's created with beauty beyond description. And this, this city, this celestial heavenly city, uh, which transcends any human city, is called the New, the new Jerusalem. And so the possession of the New Jerusalem by God's people in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy for all eternity is also a fulfillment of the everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham and his physical descendants, and the possession of the New Jerusalem and the possession of the new heaven and the new earth and the possession of eternal life and the possession of having a brand new, perfect, perfect age, perfect shape, perfect beauty, a brand new, the possession of having a brand new glorified body is yours, is also part of your possession, your covenantal possession. And as simplistic as it sounds, God promises you as part of your infinite amount of possessions and blessings that you will receive in heaven, you are going to receive by God a wondrous, beautiful, mansion of indescribable beauty created and built and constructed in every aspect specifically for your particular and unique personality. So nobody's mansion is going to look the same. It's not going to be like the suburbs where they just cookie cutter out templates of one another. You will have a mansion and the mansions will be different construction. They'll have different views. They'll have different interiors. It's a mansion with such majesty, such beauty, such warmth. And the most wondrous thing of it all is that ma mansion that God and the angels have created for you, and it's waiting for you now. It's described in John 14, in the beginning of the chapter. That mansion reflects the most intimate parts of your imagination, your personality, and your creativity. And it's just the beginning of the infinite rewards and blessings that will unfold forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's it. So I need your help. With the glory of God in this room and the presence of God going through the internet, which bounces off the various satellites, 
rigging or no rigging, they can't stop the glory of God. Manipulating the numbers and, and, and censoring and marginalizing, they can't stop the presence of God. They can't stop the battering ram of God's truth. They can't wall it off. They can't build an electronic stronghold strong enough to withstand the battering ram of God's truth that blows open any obstacle or hindrance to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only means by which men and women can receive eternal life, and it is the only means by which men and women and children, whether they're fully born or not, it's the only means by which men and women can receive the gift of eternal life, a brand new glorified body, and be the whole new creation that God created it to be. There's going to be laughter in heaven, joy in heaven, friendship in heaven, love in heaven. And guess what? Jesus will not only be your Lord, but he will be your friend. God bless you. This is Paul McGuire. I need you to listen to the voice of the Lord now. The Lord is ministering to you. His presence is all over you. His spirit is filling you. And while you're in this holy place where the Lord is visiting you, simply whisper to the Lord, Lord, how can I help this man, Paul McGuire? How can I help him with Paradise Mountain Church and Paul McGuire Ministries? What can I do, Lord? And whatever the Lord gently whispers to your soul to do, whatever it is, whatever it is, simply step out on faith, walk on the water, obey the Lord, and do whatever it is the Lord is telling you to do in terms of standing with us, with donations, prayers, intercessory prayers. And I want to thank each and every one of you for donating uh, with your financial gifts. You're helping us expand the outreach. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, every one of you that have uh, heard my words to defeat rigging and you signed up for the e-blast list. I need you to keep doing it. I don't give that away to anybody. Sign on to the e-blast list at paulmcguire.us. It's critical. Sign on and follow and like and join all of our different social media platforms like Rumble, like Brideon, and, and the podcasting, and Truth, and Getter, and all the new ones we just added. You know, they, taught, they took me down. This is the second time they've taken me down. They ripped me off uh, Google for, for, for speaking the truth in a loving, intelligent way. I got taken down. What does that tell you about the hearts of certain men? They wage war against me because I spoke the truth, which sets people free. They took me down. They don't want you to hear that. They've taken me down and threatened me on other social media platforms. Well, like many others, we knew that they were going to do that. And so, um, and we knew that we were going to speak the truth in love. So we made plans. We were proactive. And we began to expand aggressively on all kinds of social media platforms, including Roku. We got so many videos for you at Roku. We got so many articles. Our books are discounted literally below cost when you include the fact that we're the ministries paying for the shipping. So stand with me. We, we are the supernatural body of Christ. If we move in love and we rejoice in the Lord, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We then become unbeatable. We are an unbeatable army of love. We are the saints of God, and together we will and are prevailing now. Every place that our foot steps, 
we occupy in the authority of Jesus Christ. You and I are fearless because the Spirit of God indwells in us. And when the Spirit of God dwells in you, you become supernaturally bold. That means you're, as, as motivational uh, uh, neuropsychiatrists and sports psychologists would say, in secular terms, it, they say it like this, you, you entered uh, a flow state, you're in the zone, or you're in a flow state, or you're in the zone. That's when everything clicks. That's when there's momentum behind you. That's when you can like walk on water, when you're in the flow state or you're in the zone. I have found that when you're really filled with the Spirit of God, you're unbeatable, you're bold, your intelligence is, is enhanced. You can actually, without struggling, the Spirit of God will, will produce in you and your children and your loved ones and your husband and yourself or your ex or whatever. When you're filled with the Spirit of God, the Lord will supernaturally enhance you to, to enter a place of peak performance. You will perform at the level of peak performance. You will experience Holy Spirit-driven uh, human enhancement, not augmentation, not cyborg stuff, the gifts and the presence and the power of God. How do you think David dropped Goliath with one slingshot? How do you think David walked fearlessly uh, past his jealous brothers? and boldly in a state of no fear. I went to Paris and ministered to 50,000 people. Then I went out to where they were demonstrating, and they had a giant sign, no fear. David faced Goliath. He was in, he was in a flow state, to use secular terms. He was in the zone, in secular terms. In, in biblical terms, David was clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And where the spirit, of the, the spirit of fear can't coexist or can't externally oppress when you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So David was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That supernaturally enhanced his athletic ability, so he dropped Goliath with one smooth stone. The giant fell with a thud, and the mighty Syrian army fled in terror. God can do those kinds of things in your life, your children's life, your relative's life. You may think you're in a life and death struggle with physical health, with finances, with jobs, with the various problems that we all face in this uh, fallen world. Yes, we all face these problems in the fallen world. But if you'll take time to draw aside and to do exactly what Jesus said, which is to tarry in Jerusalem until the Father clothes you with power from on high, you will experience the greatest game changer of your entire life. Think about that. Now, maybe you're not going to tarry in Jerusalem and Israel because that's a long way away. Maybe you live in Nebraska or someplace. So you're going to tarry, which means to wait on God, to seek on God with all your heart in the location that God leads you to. It could be like me. I, I lie in bed all night praying for hours. Oh, it's, it's wondrous. If you think prayer is boring, you don't know how to pray. You know, I used to think for years that prayer was some kind of old lady thing. Forgive me if, if you're advanced in years. I'm no spring chicken myself for crying out loud. <laughs> but the point is, point is, lying in bed, I pray for hours, and it's not a labor. I learned years ago. You know what, what taught me years ago? And maybe it's the same thing that taught you. The more trials I had, the more spiritual warfare I had, 
the more desperate I became to get help and answers from Jesus. When when God allows a, a bonfire to be lit under your posterior, you get real and you get dedicated and you com- get committed to spiritual growth real quick. In that fiery crucible, God birthed in my heart a total revolution in my understanding of what prayer was about. I discovered to my own amazement that prayer was not boring or dull or religious or legalistic. I discovered that you can enter prayer, and the only way I can describe it in an understandable manner is that when I pray, the reason I can pray for hours is not because I'm some you know, great saint. The reason I can pray for hours, and it seems like minutes, I've prayed, I used to pray with my wife in the backyard. We haven't lately because of the weather, the artificial weather modification. But, you know, we would lie there on the grass and we would pray for like six hours at a time. And we would enter into the presence of God and it was like ecstasy, it was joy. What I learned, what I learned is that prayer is not boring. Prayer is not something for super religious freaks. Prayer is not dull. For me, on an experiential uh, level, prayer is like emotionally and psychologically, I feel like I'm soaring. I feel like I'm flying high above my problems and challenges. And no, I'm not on drugs, so slap in the face to you. I've learned that prayer is, is like surfing. And I'm not, you know, a surfer. I'm from New York City. I know subways and how to avoid the muggers and the gangsters in Central Park at night. I'm not a surfing boy, okay? I'm a mountain climber. I'm a bike rider and stuff like that. I'm a street fighter in certain occasions in, back in my past. But, but what I learned is that real prayer is a high. Real prayer produces ecstasy, not the drug ecstasy, the emotion of, of joy at, a, at, a, at an extreme level. Extreme, not in the sense of crazy. Extreme in the sense of radical happiness. How would you like to experience radical happiness, radical joy, rad- a radical high that's not you know, attributed to drugs? And I'm telling you, I discovered when I, when the, not I, the Lord caused me to discover. I entered into a whole dynamic of prayer. And the only thing I can say, it's like surfing the waves of heaven. So instead of the waves of the Pacific Ocean, I'm surfing on the waves of God's glory as they're released from the kingdom of heaven, and the tide of the glory of God, the rivers of living water, begins to sweep out of me and out of you. And it begins to, as the tide comes in, the glory of God, the rivers of living water, you surf it, and at the same time, it floods, not destructively, it floods in revival and deliverance and salvation and healing and victory and spiritual warfare. So I want to leave you with that. I want to I want to pop the balloon of any religious, legalistic misconception that may have been embedded in your heart. Oh man, if I could turn you on to this, if you could learn how to fly in the power of the Holy Spirit. No, I'm not talking about delusional Peter Pan time. I'm not talking about like joining Mary Poppins, bouncing off the ceiling. I'm talking about rational, coherent, sane, logical, pay attention, focused, driven have a game plan, victory, but at the same time, right brain, left brain, right right hemispheric brain, left hemispheric brain, balance them and ride with joy with God, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, we're out of time for today. 
I literally could go on for three more hours. The, the ecstasy and wonder. And by the way, I wrote about all this in my book, Power From On High. And, and, and somehow I'm having a challenge communicating that I'm not, when I talk about stuff like revival and prayer and intercessory prayer, please understand, read my book, Power From On High. Give it to people. Buy multiple copies. Have Bible studies on it. I'm, I, the book, Power From Not High, Power From On High, is, is not a book on boring prayers and religiosity and legalism and mundaneness. Oh, man, it's not that at all. I, I gave you not only my quest through the occult and the New Age and stuff like that, but I, but I shared with you details I've never shared before on how the Lord opened up to me powerful kingdom principles that have allowed me and anybody who applies them, because God is, a, is not a respecter of persons. The book Power from on High, if you'll read it and, and, and dig for the, the, the bursting, explosive spiritual truths, it'll rock your world for the better. It'll rock your world for the better. I'm telling you this. I promise you this. It'll change the direction of your life. It'll change your outcome. It'll give you a victory in the end game. People will relate to you differently. People will perceive you differently. And for the first time in your life, you will experience levels of acceptance, a dissipation of rejection, an eradication of the spirit of fear. And you will experience a supernatural boldness that comes out of your inner man or woman as the rivers of living water burst from your inner man or woman, and you ride the surf of that as the tide comes in. God bless you. This is Paul McGuire. Be sure to visit paulmcguire.us, paulmcguire.us. Spread this far and wide as if our nation and your life depended on it, because it does. God bless you, your servant in Christ, Paul McGuire.